0: Welcome to Plume, a Writer's Podcast. I'm Melanie Unruh-Rodriguez.
1: And I'm Jennifer Simpson. And we're, and we're the Plume, Plume Gals.
0: Gals. That was as close as it's gotten. I say that every time, <laughs> but I believe it this time.
1: Writing can be lonely and difficult pursuit, and for women and non-binary writers, it's sometimes relegated to the back burner. Plume is a supportive community for writers. We are here to inspire and encourage you in the important creative work that you do.
0: Each month we publish creative work and a letter of encouragement by a successful woman or non-binary writer. You can sign up for our digital Plume publication and other fun benefits over on patreon.com forward slash Plume, a writer's companion. Join for as little as $2 a month. We also host this bi-weekly podcast to give you a creative boost. So if you haven't heard, every Thursday night at 7.30 Mountain Time, which is the time zone we happen to be in, we host what we're calling Plume Zoom. Not officially, don't tell Zoom, but Plume on Zoom, if you want to call it that. And basically, we it's a free group that we have on Zoom, and we get together and talk about writing and our lives and just... It's a really great community, and it's been really supportive. We started it around the time the pandemic really, and the lockdown started, and we've been going strong ever since, and we have a nice group of people that come in, and we've just made some great friends and really just had a good time talking about writing. So if you're interested in that, um, we will include the link to sign up. You just need to register, but it's free. We'll include that in our show notes if you're interested in something like that. I know we could all use some community right now. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I look forward really to
1: Thursdays is. for that reason.
0: I know I was bummed. I missed the first one I've ever missed last week. And I was it felt I felt like wrong. I felt like where am I supposed to be? Well, I'm still in my room, but where am I supposed to be? Oh, I'm supposed to be on Zoom doing plumes. So anyway, yeah, it's it's a fun time. We really do enjoy the community we've created there. So welcome to episode nine. Oh my we gosh. are delighted. I know. Can you believe no. it? Episode nine. <laughs> We're so happy you're here. We're enjoying hosting this show so much, and we're bursting with new ideas. What else is new? (laughs) Uh, Many of which will start in 2021, so please stay tuned on that.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Then, and yeah, and then you can say you were on the ground floor for this podcast. Like, you were here when it first took off and then went into the stars. (laughs) I keep thinking about stars because Jen's Zoom background is like starry night kind of thing. Starry, starry (laughs) night. (laughs) I can't mm. sing. Oops, never mind. Oh, that was singing. <laughs> I thought you were just. I thought you were just chanting. I didn't know what that was. Chanting,
1: singing, <laughs> sure,
0: whatever. <laughs> so tonight, at the top of the episode, we thought we'd talk a little bit about a topic I'm sure you've all heard about and thought about and have strong feelings on. And so I thought it'd be interesting to dig into the topic of writer's block, especially right now when a lot of us may be experiencing something along those lines. And so I was looking at an article from a couple of years ago in Lit Hub, and it just had a collection of famous writers and what they thought about writer's block. And it really kind of ran the gamut. You know, there were some people that said, oh, it's fake, it's made up. And then there were people who said, oh, no, it's very real and I feel stuck. And then and there were a lot of men who had these like weird remedies quote unquote for it like i don't remember who it was but i remember someone said the best thing to do is just get in your car and drive cross-country and it's really cheap you can stay in a hotel and just bring <laughs> some whiskey and i was like what who what no sir that that is not possible especially not now <laughs> but and if yeah, not kids. a lot of us can yeah you can't just <laughs> drop your life and drive off into the sunset to yeah. explore the u.s and hope that you cure your your writer's block Um, so I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts, but what do you think? Well, I, I I too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hesitate to call it writer's block because I think for me, my writing ebbs and flows. It's totally normal. It's very much ebbing right now, (laughs) (laughs) but like, I mean, I don't know if I'm writing poetry, do I have writer's block? If I'm Meeting with friends with my Monday writers, I write. It may not be specifically to my memoir, which is the bigger Mm -hmm. thing that I'm working on at the moment, but I still get the words coming out on the paper. So I don't really want to call it writer's block, like it's some big disease or something, you know?
0: I think it all has to do a lot with mindset
2: too. Mm -hmm. Like the other
0: day when we were in our our Plume Zoom group, actually, we were talking about this idea of journaling versus morning pages, which to me sounded, they sounded very similar, but everybody had very strong feelings about this one is very serious and this one you can just throw the pages away. And I was like, huh, okay, I guess that's a mindset in some ways is how you're, you're conceptualizing it. And I feel like the idea of writer's block to me feels very conceptual, like... You can feel like you don't know what to say on a particular story or a poem or screenplay, whatever you're writing. But I don't know, to me, it, it almost sounds like a luxury to just say, oh, I'm blocked. I couldn't <laughs> possibly, you know. And I, it just sounds luxurious to me, I think, also because for me, I mean, I've definitely had times where I've felt like I don't know what to write or I'm not sure what to do with this time. But now... I wish I had writer's block. Like honestly, I just don't have the time or the mm, mental capacity mm. to write as much. I have lots of ideas. Like you know, it's the cliche of I'm washing dishes. I'm like, oh, that would be great. And I'm listening to an audiobook. And I'm like, wow, I love the way this is described. Well, I should go write such and such or oh, I'd love to revise that novel. And I just don't have the time right now. Like I already was strapped for time, and then suddenly, I'm locked in my house with very small children. So, it's a lot. But yeah, I think writer's block. I don't know. Whenever I. You know, experienced anything even along those lines. My go-to was to switch genres or switch topics. Right. Like when I was writing a novel, I always had short fiction I would go to, and then I went lateral and started working in nonfiction for kind of a couple of years. I didn't do a lot of fiction; I did mostly nonfiction, and and I think that paid off because I've had a couple pieces of nonfiction surprisingly get published, yeah, well, which I they were wasn't very expecting. Good too. Oh, oh, well, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> thank you. But, uh, but yeah, so now I'm returning to novel stuff a little bit here and there, and, and it's definitely different, I would say. But yeah, yeah, I think that, and there was a really interesting point, let me see if I can pull it up here, that um, one of my favorite writers, uh, Carmen Maria Machado made about writer's block. And she said, I believe so strongly that writers need to read and that reading is the way you can prevent writer's block or get over writer's block. You can keep writing if you're not filling your ga- You. I'm sorry, you can't keep writing if you're not filling your gas tank with whatever you want to read. So I'm sure that as I keep reading narratives, they'll keep speaking to me in their own ways, and I'll be turning back out stories that have been flavored by whatever I've been reading. So what do you think of that, Jen? Because that really spoke to me.
1: Yeah, well, that's something that I have been remiss, as I've mentioned, reading. I read, you know, short pieces like essays and you know whatever short stories but I really need to get back into really reading because then they do it is true I think they speak to you
0: yeah definitely and I think for me it's like a dual thing because I think you know we always joke about oh I'm reading so many books how can I do it but I think part of it is I'm trying to fill that void because I can listen to audiobooks while I'm doing other things when I can't necessarily sit down and write but also I think that it's it's kind of a form of escapism right now. I think I kind of thought when all this started this year, I thought, oh, I'm not going to read anything, I guess, this year. And I feel like maybe I didn't read as much as I intended to at the beginning. Like I had a list of, I think, 30 books, and I'm now on like 21. So Um, that's still pretty good. But either way, I just think that, yeah, it's my way of kind of jumping into another time or another place Mm. just just for a couple of minutes just to to get I can't leave my house (laughs) I can't I mean I can't leave this country I can't it's, it's a lot so I think that yeah but but at the same time I think it is feeding ideas to me so even when I'm not sitting down to write I am kind of working through different things that I'm reading to try to think how can this influence something i'm working on or i hadn't thought of such and such maybe that could be a way to structure this novel for example
1: well like i said i think last week or i don't know when (laughs) i I was listening to um where the crawdads sing oh yeah and i really really loved her landscape descriptions
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and that is something i'm not good at I'm just not mm-hmm. I don't I don't really feel connected to the land maybe mm-hmm. because I'm a navy navy brat living
0: Yeah, you're in cities a lot right
1: yeah and in the desert now yeah nowhere near an ocean so I think reading about other places um it just gives me ideas it fills me in that way
0: yeah that's a good point
1: yeah so the David Sedaris book that I'm reading um like even he's pretty good at description of places mm-hmm. and the where they have the beach house I've never been there but it's very close to where we used to go as a family
0: oh, It was nice. in
1: southern Virginia Okay very very similar and I'm like oh oh that reminds me of so and so or whatever So it just helps to sort of fuel the the flame of creativity
0: <laughs> yeah and i think just going back it's just interesting how different you know writers of the capital w think of this differently like i think tony morrison was saying she basically had to sit and just think about beloved for three years before she could even yeah. write it so i mean i imagine with a work like that you have to really take the time and then oh, who was it there was someone i want to say it was ray bradbury who was basically like if you're doing what you love you don't work a day in your life and i just feel, i feel like those kind of adages, just, yeah, not anymore. Like, there's just, nobody's doing what they want right now. And if you are, well, good for you. But I think it's pretty rare that anyone is, you know, just writing and getting paid for it. So, yeah, it, yeah I find that. I find that to be a little bit out of touch in, that, totally. <laughs> in terms of giving advice or giving feedback on mm. writer's But Well, I don't have it. I just love my jobs. <laughs> um, I don't know. I did always think it was interesting. I can't remember who it was. I remember there was an old writer. Maybe it was T.S. Eliot. I remember there was somebody who they had like a day job at like a bank. And they said they had to do that because if they had a job that involved writing or anything remotely related to it, it would just rob their creativity. They had to do something kind of mindless and wrote. And then they would come home and, and write. And so, yeah, I think you have to find that balance. Because like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could do something completely mindless. But, it yeah, it would be nice to do something that maybe is... So different from your writing. Yeah, for
1: sure. Well, uh, another thing that I do is my dream board workshops that I can't do right now. Uh (laughs) I'm figuring some things out, I hope, about Mm -hmm. doing it online. So look for that soon. Um, (laughs) Hint, hint. But, I mean, to me, like, it's, it's taking the... It's my whole purpose behind the workshop is that you use collage to, like, tell the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I've found is that subconsciously your brain works in a different way and tells you things about your story that show up in images that you select that don't necessarily show up in the writing yet. So, I mean, I did a dream board... I just started thinking about my memoir and about, like, how I've always been, I've had a lot of older women friends, always. It's like i it's like I'm finding other mothers. So I started collaging other mothers and who they were. And Mm -hmm. I, I identified myself clearly. I'm like, oh, that's me. Because I look exactly like that in every old photo, I'm always kind of behind somebody, kind of a little bit shy, you know, but observant, and then I clearly identified someone who was my grandmother, who was always cooking um mm-hmm. and some other people, and then I just I was like, "I don't know who that is and Suzanne, who was here at the time, she said, "Oh, that's Debbie, <laughs> my sister." I didn't even realize that I put my sister in this collage of other mothers. But she was like, big flamboyant (laughs) sister, you know, big floppy hat. I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess she is. Anyway, it was funny because in the group, talking about the, the work, then other people can identify and ask questions even. Well, why'd you put that bird there?
0: It's almost like story therapy yeah
1: totally <laughs> oh yeah I love and it. it's really rewarding mm-hmm. so i like that so i want
0: to yeah, do well, more to do it again soon yeah mm-hmm. i'd love to see more of that let us know on social media or you can email us at encouragement at plumeforwriters.org let us know what's your thought on writer's block is it real do you have it we're really curious i think it's one of those topics that feels cliche, but I, I just think it's interesting to come back and kind of unpack that myth a little bit more.
1: Well, I mean, is it writer's block, or is it writer's distraction?
0: Dun-dun-dun. I don't know. I used to be able to write not at my house, and I can't do that anymore, so I do get very distracted.
1: Yeah, it's easy to get distracted.
0: Yeah, I used to always go to cafes and do, that was like my once-a-week real writing sprint i would do and I, I remember writing these essays i was just talking yeah. about at my favorite cafe i have very vivid memories of sitting there smelling all the cafe scents and listening to it but listening to music and hearing people kind of rustle yeah around yeah. And, yeah so one day uh, one day yeah up next our chat with plume featured writer felicia Caton garcia Felicia Caton-Garcia was born in East Los Angeles, raised in rural Missouri, and currently lives, writes, gardens, and teaches college in the South Valley of Albuquerque, New Mexico. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Oregon and a Ph.D. in American Studies from the University of New Mexico. Felicia's poetry and fiction has been featured in magazines and journals including the Indiana Review, Prairie Schooner, and Blue Mesa Review. Her full-length collection of poetry, Say That?, was published by the University of New Mexico Press. An excerpt from her novel in progress can be found in A Larger Reality, Una Realidad Mas Amplia, Speculative Fiction from the Bicultural Margins, a publication of the MexicanX Initiative. In addition to writing, Felicia teaches American Studies, Giganex Studies, Creative Writing, and English at Central New Mexico Community College, where she is currently serving as the Presidential Fellow for Equity and Justice. So welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we'd love, if you wanted to share uh, a couple of minutes of
2: a reading, we'd love to hear some of your work out loud. Sure. Uh, we can start with that. If it sounds like it's poetry, it's because this novel shifts perspective between three different speakers, and one of those speakers' um, portions are in verse, which is to say that I have deliberately chosen line breaks um, for the writing of it and the idea here is I was trying to capture the voice um, of multiple people I've known throughout my life who have grown up speaking several languages and whose use of language often sounds to me like poetry um, in the sense that there are unexpected synchronicities and Um, inflections that I didn't feel like I could capture in prose. Uh, So this particular excerpt is from one of the three characters in the novel, and she is a translator. And so much of her work inside of the novel is about existing on those margins and in those borderlands, whether it is the borderlands of language, the literal borderlands of being a Chicana living in the United States, um, or the borderlands of her relationships that she has during the course of the story. So this is the first time we hear about her during the course of the novel, and her sections, um, although they're located inside of her, are in third person for reasons that I hope become clear as the novel unfolds. So this section is titled "Translation." Some Afternoons, Lena volunteers at the South Broadway Cultural Center. People, mostly brown people, come to her with court documents, police reports, notes from teachers, job applications, letters from collection agencies and insurance companies. She translates warranties, classified ads, report cards, and news articles about the latest unsolved murders and disappearances that riddle New Mexico. And each week, Arturo, 70 and long widowed, comes in with a poem he once translated into English. He writes the poems to a woman he's met at the Senior Center. He speaks very little English and she speaks no Spanish at all, but the two meet every Friday afternoon and walk slowly along the cracking sidewalks of Ario Varelas. While they walk, he recites his poems to her in Spanish, then gives her the notepaper filled with Lena's English translations. He takes her arm so that she can read them aloud while he keeps her from stumbling. It has never occurred to either of them to sit for these exchanges. He writes walking poems. Arturo wears spotless gray pants and brightly colored button-down shirts. This afternoon, out of deference to the heat, he has abandoned his jacket and traded in his polished wingtips for a pair of worn huaraches. Arturo was a doctor in Mexico until he retired to the US to live with his son and daughter-in-law. He tells Lena that he doesn't ever want to look inside a human body again, that now he only wants to see all the thoughts and dreams mysteriously packed in that wet flesh. This week he has written an elegy to the students in the Tlatelolco massacre in Mexico City in 1968. Nadia recuerda, he says, he tells Lena about being a young doctor in the emergency room the night the army opened fire on the protesters. He tells her how young people flooded the lobby of the hospital, carrying their wounded friends and family on their backs or in their arms. The poem he has written is about a teenager who fought crowds for an hour, dodging the police carrying his girlfriend in his arms. Pero, says Arturo, shrugging his shoulders, demasiado tarde, ella se murió. In the poem, the doctor explains to the boy that his lover is already dead. The boy insists that this is not possible, that he can feel her breathing. The doctor must still see to the living, so he leaves the boy standing in the corner of the room under the bright lights of the hospital, blood pooling on the floor around him. Hours later, the doctor sees the same boy sitting in the corner, still holding the girl's body, and he crouches beside him, planning to coax him into releasing the dead woman in his arms. That's when he discovers that only half of the blood was the woman's. Her body had hidden the bullets in the body of her boyfriend. He had told no one he was injured, perhaps did not know it himself. He sat down on the floor of the emergency room, holding the body of his lover and died. It's the kind of poem Lena is afraid to write. She worries that any drama sounds like melodrama. At 39, she's begun to realize that thinking something is too dramatic to be real is a condition that affects only the young. She's learning that reality outstrips poetry every time for sheer irony and horror. At the end of Arturo's poem, the speaker sits beside the two bodies, unlacing their blood-soaked shoes, trying to make them comfortable. He chastises them, not for their politics, but for their love. No cualquiera cada decirle, he asks, stroking the hair of the dead girl. Amar es enterrar. Didn't anyone ever tell you, Lena translates aloud, to love is to bury. Lena already imagines telling the story to Sebastian later the same evening. It is her favorite time to spend with him when they lie together in the street-lit urban version of darkness, telling one another the stories they've gathered during their respective days. Seva, who left Argentina to keep from being a body on an emergency room floor, Seva, who now, Lina suspects, stays in the States only for her and their daughter. Lena will tell him the story in Spanish. Then she will tell him in English. She translates for the man who requires no translation. She hopes he understands that she tells him two separate stories, similar but not the same. After all, thinks Lina, there is no word in English that means amor. There is no word in Spanish that means love. Now, she writes, no one remembers. I'm so glad you read that. That was my favorite part from
0: the work that you gave us. I really love that passage so much. Wow. Thanks.
2: I like it too. And I rarely like anything I write. So I <laughs> like
1: <laughs> Oh
0: my gosh. And that reveal it- about the the lovers and the he died. I was just every the second time I've now heard it. And I just, oh, it's a lot. Is that based on anything? The details of that? Is that based on anything real? like the the so that's a real
2: massacre that happened in Mexico City right yeah yeah so that history um, does come from from the record and it was horrific massacre and then in terms of my own life one of the things that I'm trying to do in this novel is that I I find that so often the work um, of black brown indigenous writers is often about one or two characters kind of in opposition to a a larger white hegemony. And it doesn't always reflect the reality that I have lived, which is that my personal sphere, especially since I moved here to Albuquerque, is full of, it's full of Black women from Chicago and um, indigenous people from Bolivia and um, native, you know, Nuevo Mexicanos. And it, so many of the most interesting and important interactions that i have and the people in my community have are with each other who are who are coming from these radically different places with these radically different identities and so one of the things that i was hoping to do in this novel was to capture the significance of those interactions inside of these really mixed and hybrid and complex communities that are not kind of don't fit neatly into the categories that I feel, again, the publishing community often wants to see. There's a Chicana character in a Chicano neighborhood who does these Chicano things. And that hasn't been my experience of living.
0: Great. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I was thinking, I was sure that the, the massacre had been real. I was just curious about the the characters, if they were based on any Anyone, you know, and it sounds like you were saying they're kind of a conglomerate of, of people, you know. So beautiful stuff. Thank you. Wow. That was great. Like hearing that, because I've read that on the page, but hearing it, it's, it's just beautiful. It's just the kind of language you just want to sit and savor. And I see exactly what you mean about, you know, it's prose, but it definitely reads a lot like poetry. Yeah, Very much so. Yeah. I just think this year obviously has been, disastrous on many levels, but hearing and reading literature and, and hearing you read just now, I think is just something that is able to like transport me away for a minute. And even if it is, you know, there's obviously some terrible things going on within the story. I just think the beauty of the language is, is really a gift. So thank you for sharing that with us.
2: Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah.
0: So you write beautifully in multiple genres. Is there one that you feel more comfortable writing in One that you feel is like your primary genre?
2: Probably poetry, Um, but my favorite work by other people is always work that crosses genres, um, or combines them, or transcends them, or blends them, or meshes them. I don't know what the right verb is, but I'm always interested in work that I can't quite put my finger on. The writer Toby Barlow has a book, um, Shark Teeth, that's a novel that's entirely in verse, and that is one of my favorite contemporary novels. because of the way it does that, I also really like, you know, a lot of a lot of speculative fiction that kind of blends genre. So, poetry was sort of my first love and a lot of my training, but I've written a lot of my poetry was often very narrative too. And so, again, for me, since my favorite work is that which is unclassifiable, I I like to think that my own best work will be stuff that doesn't fit too neatly into any one genre. I
0: love that. We'll see yeah. That's great, and I think that speaks to what you just read to us. You know, there's definitely some some blending there. So this year, you were selected for a presidential fellowship on equity in the classroom at Central New Mexico Community College. Can you speak more about this experience and how you hope to affect important changes at CNM and within the community?
2: Um, well, like so many writers, I have other jobs and other um, ways of doing the work that I do, and um, although I'm full time faculty currently in a previous career i worked in divisions of equity and inclusion inside of higher education and i also was a freelance consultant around issues of equity justice inclusion specifically looking at issues of race class gender ethnicity disability in education and so it has been a while since i've focused on this work outside of the classroom because I do teach in American studies and Chicana Chicano, Chicana studies. I do spend a lot of time talking with students about issues of race and class inequity, justice, um, oppression, privilege, but I haven't really worked institutionally um, that way for some time. I kind of needed a break. It's exhausting work. It's work where you feel like you're starting the conversation from the same spot over and over and over again, and that can get super frustrating and lead to a lot of burnout. So I needed some time away from that. Um, Took that time and now I'm really excited to be in this position. And essentially um, I am tasked with looking at my institution, looking at Central New Mexico Community College and seeing what, what of substance do we need to do moving forward so that we actually so that all of our um, all of our slogans around being accessible to all students, all of the um, the language that we use around being equitable, around being inclusive, about putting students first, is not just aspirational, but becomes a little bit more actual um, by looking at the places where we fall short and thinking about some of those deep systemic changes that we need to make as an institution because we can't level the playing field, but we can certainly do a better job inside of our little bit of the world. Um, so that's what I'm working on.
0: Yeah, that's important work. So, that, and that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't realized you'd done this work before and that makes total sense that you need that time away. Like, I don't know how somebody could do that kind of work long-term, some people do, but that has to be really challenging, I'm sure you get in certain places, a lot of pushback and just people not getting it. So I appreciate that. It's
2: exhausting and I think one of the things that people don't necessarily think about is that it's not an intellectual exercise for so many of us who do this work, we occupy those identities. Um, You know, We are black and brown or indigenous, we are queer, we are disabled, we we occupy these identities. And um, so when we're doing this work, often we find ourselves in the situation of essentially having to debate the validity of our existence and yeah. debate, argue with people for our rights to exist as humans, right? And so it's it's exhausting work on so many levels.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so going back to, to the writing, uh, part of the writing you're sharing with Plume for November is a gorgeous excerpt from your novel, which we just heard some of, And we'd love to hear about your writing process. You know, everyone kind of approaches novels differently. And so what kind of stage you're in and how how you go about writing a novel, because I find it very challenging.
2: So today I'm in the stage where I hate everything about it. And I think (laughs) I'll just scrap it and forget it forever. Um, So that's the stage I'm in right now. But that's just today. And it'll probably look different tomorrow. So I found... I've written short fiction before and I've written poetry and I had not ever tried a novel. I am also not a prolific writer, given that your audience is primarily people who are writers and who are interested in writing. I feel like it can be helpful for me to be super transparent about this. I am not a prolific writer. It takes me years and years and years to assemble a book worth of a thing. Now, in the past, this has been, you know, it's I've also been a single mother raising two children and working full time and all of that. Um, so we'll see, now my youngest is off to college, so perhaps at this point I'll I'll become more prolific than I ever have been in the past, but maybe not. Um, and I think that's okay. Uh, so my process of writing the novel actually, the reason that I said perhaps the genre that I am best suited to is poetry, is that it was very hard for me to think about the novel as a whole piece. It comes to me, I'm able to sit and write a single scene and the connective tissue was is what is difficult for me. And so rather than try to do something that I felt like I was poorly suited for, I decided on a form for the novel that was episodic and allowed me to sort of create, um, you know, kind of an assemblage of different perspectives and different scenes and to rely on the reader to make the connections between those scenes to tell a larger story. So I I haven't abandoned the reader entirely in terms of that. I am conscious of how things thread from one chapter to the next, from one moment to the next. The novel takes place over the course of a year. But I decided not to try to make it um, crystal clear because I thought I would be bad at that and it would just come across as insulting to the reader. So instead I focused on making each character's individual path. Um, individual thought process as clear as I could, as interesting as I could, and trusting that if I made those characters really come to life, that the connections between them and the connections between their stories would become apparent to anyone who was bothering to read it in the first place. And I think, you know, I mean, I think it's more or less succeeding in doing that. We'll see how it goes. It's, It's pretty much complete except for editing, Um, And it's been that way since just before the pandemic. Um, And I know that some people have really said, oh, you know, since the pandemic I've been home and I've been doing all this writing, but that has not been me at all. I have been absolutely stuck. To get unstuck, I left the novel behind entirely and returned to poetry for a while. And that is how I've been able to write it all for the past few months.
0: Yeah, we've been hearing from a lot of people that I think have been in a similar boat. And I know I personally yeah, I've done some writing, but like it's just trying to return to things and and create has been really difficult right now. And and thinking of Jen's and my experiences with our own books we're working on, I, I get the whole not prolific feeling because we've both been working on the same books for what is it now, Jen? Twelve years or something?
1: Yeah, something like
0: that. <laughs> It's been a long time. Yeah, she's working on a memoir, and I'm working on a novel. And yeah, it it uh it definitely takes some time. But uh, but that's that's interesting. And like in coming back to to poetry, I think a lot of people have have mentioned to us that poetry feels like the most accessible natural thing right now, just because everything is so chaotic. In addition to telling a deeply personal and moving story, your plume letter speaks to this terrible precipice this country is facing right now, literally today in some ways. Uh, What do you see as the role of writers in this moment? (laughs) No pressure.
2: Yeah, that is a perpetual, it's a perpetual question. Um, It's one that I used to have, like, throughout my life, I've had a, a series of pat answers to that, that I don't necessarily think were wrong. But were also probably insufficient. Um, I'm not sure the role of writers has ever really changed. There's never been a moment, for instance, in American history when the communities that I write for have not been in peril. So has there ever been a time you know, when it wasn't absolutely crucial to be telling stories, to be giving voice to perspectives that are absent from mainstream media that are largely marginalized? I mean, it has always been that way. So I think for me at this particular juncture, the better question is, what is the role of the publishing industry um, yeah. at this particular juncture? And because I feel like writers have been doing what they should be doing. There are so many amazing writers. Um, And of course, there are so many not amazing writers and that's how it always has been too. Um, There are a lot of people who are invested in telling really good and important stories. And the question for me is is more so like, is the publishing industry ready to take those steps where they are thinking and rethinking about what it means to be the gatekeepers of the books that are published, the words, the language, the stories that get out there, can we fund appropriately people who traditionally have not been those gatekeepers so that we get to hear a wider variety of those stories and those voices? So that's kind of the question I'm obsessed with right now is is less so the role of writers as when the publishing industry, how the publishing industry can begin to really acknowledge those voices Um, because we see a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of cosmetic attention to that issue. But if you look at who's getting published, if you look at who's deciding who's getting published, you're still seeing a very familiar sort of set of actors um, in that. And so that's my big question. I feel like if we have the opportunity to tell those stories, then the role of writers will become evident as that work begins to enter the mainstream of the US. That I feel I'm afraid that I sounded like I'm ducking out of your question and I'm not trying to.
0: No, not at um, all. Okay. Yeah, no, I appreciate the reframing of it. Like I couldn't quite think of the phrasing I wanted to use and I think that's really important to acknowledge and absolutely give give deference to the fact that marginalized communities have been doing the work and have been doing the writing and some people are, you know, just now waking up and just now coming to realize what this moment means and not seeing what all of history has been doing in a lot of ways. And I think it's important to look at the gatekeepers, like you said, like the the publishers and the people that kind of wield the access to these things. So I think that's a really important way to approach this and to think about that.
1: Um, I sort of find it interesting to think about how the publishing industry... Uh, One uh, has opened up in some ways, just the internet and the print on demand and all these other ways to participate in telling the stories.
0: No, I I get what you're saying. I think in some ways publishing has been democratized, but it's still really stratified and really keeping, you know, keeping certain people out or setting like, Not explicitly, but I feel like implicitly a lot of publishers set quotas. Like we can have this many, you know, queer writers and this many people of color, this many, you know. Yeah. And so I think publishing itself has to change. I think, you know, you look at who the agents are and we were talking to Sam about this a couple episodes ago, like who the agents are, who the publishers are. And like she was doing like research and there were very few um, publishers of color and yeah, it's really hard, you know, and she's trying to publish a book or was, I guess right now she's got it on hold, but she's for years been trying to publish this book about a group of queer women that like, she just couldn't people. Oh, it's great, but we just can't sell this. And it's just, yeah, it's really frustrating that there is a need out there and there is a want for it. If people would just look around at who's actually reading and who actually wants these stories. It's yeah, Mm -hmm. it's frustrating. So I'm trying to think of who
2: is, who is, whose work is being given, um, An audience and then also the kinds of stories that we're expected to tell if we get that audience Uh, so if you are, you know, a a Latina writer Mm -hmm. who is who wants to tell a story if it doesn't have the particular hallmarks that the publishing industry has decided it's supposed to have for a Latina novel so they can market it in this particular way, um, this sort of like mango-rich, magical, realist, <laughs> sexy novel, then it's not—it's much harder to, to get that sort of work published. If you're a Black author who wants to write about something, who wants to write, for instance, about Black joy instead of Black struggle, um, and- pain. I think it's a lot harder to get those books published, um, which is not to say that Latinas can't write about mango-rich sexuality and should be able to, and that Black writers shouldn't be writing about Black pain um, and Black struggle, only that uh, the sort of pigeonholing of which stories are appropriate, as opposed to being able to have the whole range of our human experience available and, and wanted, right? that is That to me is almost the bigger stumbling block. So we're only hearing certain voices um, and we still hear only certain women's voices, you know, ever. And and certainly when it comes to writers of colors, uh, color and queer writers, we're, we're only hearing very specific sorts of stories, not because other stories aren't being told, but because publishers are cherry picking what they think the readership expects to hear from that particular demographic Mm -hmm. yeah
0: absolutely so is there anything that you want to plug anything that's coming out or work you're doing or where people can find you online if that's your thing
2: it's a really good question. I am the worst possible publicist for myself that anyone <laughs> ever is. I don't even remember the things that I have coming out half the time. Um, you know, honestly, like at this particular moment, most of my work is not gonna be something that's of much interest necessarily to your audience. It's, um, I'm I'm working on, um, the teaching part of my career and sort of the pedagogy stuff. So, you know, I'm developing a workshop. Well, actually, kind of, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm developing a, a week long course for the Digital Pedagogy Lab for next summer that's looking specifically at speculative fictions and pedagogy, and particularly around how do we envision or imagine what education looks like or means, what teaching or learning looks like or means in the pandemic, post-pandemic, like if the pandemic is this you know, doorway that we are being thrust to, if the Black Lives Matters, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter protests are these, these doorways that we're moving through right now, what do we imagine lies on the other side of them as educators? And so this week-long course that I'm developing is specifically for educators to think about what we might want to leave behind and what we want to see created or made space for um, moving forward so that's the work that I'm doing right now I'm really excited about that stuff and I'm excited to start writing poetry again even if it felt like I got coerced into it <laughs> extorted into it by the pandemic so yeah I'll keep you posted on that but at the moment my publications are primarily academic
0: okay well great I look forward to hearing more about the pedagogy that sounds awesome all right well, thank uh, you for joining us today that was really great we really did enjoy speaking with Felicia I just thought she was so smart oh, and had yeah. such great things yeah. to say I just really appreciated the way she even just like took the question and just took it in a totally different direction that I didn't anticipate but I immediately was like wow that that's exactly what I needed to hear so yeah. we're so. and happy I
1: didn't thanks. even say much because I was just clinging to her every word that she had to say mm-hmm.
0: um. so it was great to have her All right, on to book reviews. So a few days ago, I finished a book I had mentioned i had started. I kind of set it aside to finish my library books. Oh, actually, that reminds me. I did finish um, Girl, Woman, Other, and that was really good and just really fascinating structurally and thematically. Mm. I didn't read, like, uh, I think I mentioned Julia, one of our former featured writers, had had oh, recommended right. it to me. Yeah. yeah. And then I didn't, I didn't really read. I kind of glanced at what I was about. I was like, this sounds great. I'll read it. And I didn't really read in detail in the back, which I'm kind of glad I didn't because I didn't know what I was getting mm. into. It ended up following 12 different women and non-binary people. And it was just this interconnected web of people that was just so fascinating. I really, I've never read anything quite that structurally innovative and I I just thought it was really Mm. interesting and so that book was really good I recommend that a lot and then I also just finished Long Bright River which I was about halfway through about a month ago and then I like I said I had to set that aside but I came back to it and that's uh this Liz Moore book that probably doesn't even need my praises because it's on the top of like all these lists and it's it's really made a splash this year but it's just a really beautiful story like it and it caught me by surprise because I didn't realize how much of like a suspense story it was going to be because I mm. knew it dealt with siblings like on different sides of the opioid crisis but I didn't really realize that there was like a mystery and there were murders and the one character was a cop which at first I was kind of like oh I don't really know if I want to read this but I really think it it could have gone further but I think it ultimately did start to really push back against this idea in subtle ways of like what does it mean to be a cop why did I go into this? is there such a thing as a good cop? So I thought it really asked the right questions. Because, yeah, I'm sort of grappling with... I don't generally read a lot of stories about cops, but that does bring me to my next book that I just started. So I probably mentioned before one of my favorite writers is Tana French. Yeah, is is this new? uh, Yes, I didn't even know. I saw a list and this had just come out. And I was like, well, I got to get this. So I I jumped on this new book of hers. It's not part of the Dublin Murder Series. She's kind of two books now. Off of that series for the time being. But it's called The Searcher. And I'm only about... Well, I can't tell you how many pages. Because it's audio. I'm 13% into it. And I have the speed up a little bit. Because it would have been, I think, 14 hours. And I've got it to where it's down to 10. Because of the speed. It's not even that fast, though. I'm only going at, like, 1.3. So, anyway. I like it a lot. I like the description. Speaking of landscapes. Like, wow. Can she just describe a scene? Like, it's, it's incredible. But, uh... I don't know, I was slightly disappointed at first because I, again, I didn't read the back too carefully because I was like, oh, it's taught in French. I'm going to love it. And then I I was deciding to get this one or I get another one right now. Ooh, I really want to hear an Irish accent. So I bought it. And then I was like, why, is it, why isn't Why is this person Irish? What's happening? And then I realized the character is, is someone who moved from Chicago to Ireland. And so the narrator has not even a Chicago uh. accent, just an American accent, but... There are lots of characters in it. So he does switch and there is some, some Irish little thing. Cause I just love that. That's like one reason that sometimes I like to, to read her stuff in audio. Cause I just love a good Irish narrator, I guess. So anyway, I'm, I'm just getting into that. Just scratching the surface of it. So I'll report back on that maybe next time a little more, but so far, I don't know. That's uh, my escapism this week is a book that takes place far, far away in the country in Ireland and we'll see what happens there. What about you, Jen? You said you're still reading Sedaris? Yeah. I'm slow.
1: I'm slow at everything this week.
0: <laughs> well, we're all we're all hanging on by a thread. I certainly don't blame you.
1: I got my wow. postcards written and sent to Georgia. Oh, well, that's awesome. Good for you. That was a big deal <laughs> for me. Yeah.
0: So in terms of writing, do you want to go first, Jen? I know. I, I wrote I know. postcards. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. Well, there you go. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, like I I feel like I've been thinking about it a lot. And like I said, when I'm like doing chores around the house, I've been percolating some ideas, like listening to, the, like I said, the way Tana French describes a landscape. I was like, how can I up my landscaping? Mm. Like, I feel like I actually have a story that I think is my most setting driven story and I love it and I've been working on it for oh my gosh it's so embarrassing it's a short story I've been working on for like 12 years and I set it aside and come back to it and I just love it and I just think the plot at this point I think is all wrong so but it it, I'll just say that it it, I love the setting because it takes place on this island off the coast of Nantucket that I've been to a couple times that some old family friends had like a house there which I know sounds ridiculous but anyway it's just this island that I thought isn't necessarily scary, but I feel like it has the potential to be. And there is like an old ghost story. And so I kind of incorporated that into it. And I feel like the setting is there. I just need to get a better handle, like maybe scrap the story and start over. Cause I, I think there's something there. But I think however many rejections 12 years later and how many revisions is telling me that, yeah, it's not necessarily the setting. It might just be the story. So yeah. that's what, another one for the list of things I will get to eventually.
1: Let's do a prompt. I pulled out Judy Reeves' book, Wild Women, Wild Voices, which you can't see, but I'm showing it to Melanie, who also can't see it. (laughs) Because your background is... Oh, there it is. There's a tree. I see a tree. Next Friday, I am hosting a Dime Stories event, which is an open mic for three-minute stories, fact or fiction. And... It's also in honor of a good friend of mine who was one of my other mothers. She and her husband used to call me their favorite daughter, which was hilarious because, I mean, of course I was her favorite because she was never with me as a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so she passed away two years ago, Um, Susan. And so it's in honor of her because also Dia de los Muertos was her favorite holiday. So I've actually asked all all our other Albuquerque people who knew her and participated in poetry events and prose events with her to join in. And I have some of her stories recorded. One of them is really powerful because it's true and one of them is really funny because it's not true. So, it's not going to be all about her, but it's going to be stories about our ancestors, real and fictional. So, that's my prompt is to write something about an ancestor. It could just be a memory a meal you had together a holiday. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a story. You can make it into a story later. But write a memory of an ancestor, real
0: or fictional. So even someone that was real that you never met? Yeah. Right?
1: That yeah, that's great. Oh, I yeah, love that. So. I love that. And that's in
0: honor of los Martos. And uh, can anyone come to the... Yeah. Like, could anyone on Zoom? Okay, yeah, we'll include yeah. the link in the show notes and if people want to join, if they want to come prepared. And it's prose, though, not poetry, yeah. right?
1: no poetry. Okay. Lots of poetry out there. <laughs> But they have to be three-minute stories, which is about 500 words. Oh, wow. So.
0: I'll just have to up the speed if I were to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's great. it, though. Right. Well, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash plume or writer's companion. And our website, where we host our blog, is plumeforwriters.org. And on social media, Twitter and Instagram, we're at PlumeForWriters. On Facebook, we're Pluma Writer's Companion. We'd love it if you could help us grow this podcast. Tell your friends and tell other writers you know. We'd also love it if you would rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. That's the best way to help people find us and to help us grow this community and continue flourishing along with you. Happy Happy writing! Happy writing! I don't get it. You always add an extra beat. I should just, in my head, add an extra beat.